what we're sort of doing these three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, which is the 24th, which is a Sunday. That's pretty cool. I expect you to go to church that Sunday. We're looking at the family tree of Jesus during this Advent season, this Advent season that runs from December 3rd to the day of Christmas. And with the Advent season, I don't know if y'all have been listening when y'all, well, y'all have been here the last two weeks, but <laughs> I don't know if y'all have been listening to Dean, but he's probably doing something similar. But the Advent season is kind of like an airplane runway. We're getting momentum. We're getting ready to take off for this grand experience, this grand event. And the grand event, of course, is Christ's birth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? And if you notice in this family tree, it is a long buildup. It is a long advent. It takes thousands of years. And if you notice in this family tree, you can go ahead and turn to it, Duke, is that it is not as pretty as it should look. If you look into the stories of this people, you start to realize that there is a lot of good, bad, and ugly alike. There's a lot of prostitutes. There's a lot of pimps. There's a lot of slaves and betrayals like we looked at last week. There's a lot of adulterers and murderers, as we'll look at today. But if you look at these Bible stories, and if you read them, if you really read them, if you know the context, you'll start to see something incredible, not necessarily about these people, but something incredible about these people's God. And the truth about God that we learn from these stories is that he's not distant, and he's not non-existent like the rest of the world says. He is very real, and he's present, and he's working in the lives of every single person in the history of humankind. And the beautiful thing about our God, and one of the most glorifying things about God, is how he uses good, bad, and ugly alike to accomplish the ultimate good, which is the advent of Jesus Christ into our lives, Jesus Christ into the lives of everybody else, and Jesus Christ into the world itself. He reveals, he restores, he reconciles, and one day he will return to finish that work. And not only that, he is using us right now to do it. Today's scripture, 2 Samuel 11, verses 26 through chapter 12, verse 14. This is where we're going to base the teaching off of today. This is what this text says. Read with me in verse 26, and we'll transition into chapter 12. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you. I gave your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had all been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. 
Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to you. Give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this thing in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this thing you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, and a son born to you will die. There's a lot of great Bible stories, and many of you teach your children, and we got some kids' school going on here next door, and there's a lot of Bible stories you print off and you color on paper, right? But then there are other Bible stories you would never print off and have your kids color on paper, right? I mean, think about it. The slaughtering of babies in Egypt, or in the time of Herod, or a river of blood, or an a entire field full of dead soldiers. Would you have your kids grab the, the crayons and color that in? I don't think so. So we're not really talking about Bible school for kids. Today is Bible school for grown-ups. Uh, king David is one of our favorite Old Testament characters, right? He's the warrior king. He's the, the noble ruler that we wish we had. He's the man after God's own heart. But there comes a time in David's kingship, in the ease of his rule, um, that the climactic event of his life happens, and it's not very good, as we see. The start of chapter 11, I want you to be looking at this. I want you to make sure that what I'm saying is true. But chapter 11 pictures a certain, a certain setting, and this setting is in a time of war. It starts off in chapter 11, said there was a time of war. It's probably in the spring after the winter when, when all the armies of the world go against each other and they try to conquer their enemies. And this is this time that approaches. And you don't have to look in between the lines. It actually gives you an answer very quickly as to what David's position was at this time. David goes ahead and he sends off his armies and he sends off his, his commanders to fight the Ammonites. But if you look, you'll notice something else. Do you know what it says? When David says he, he sends out his commanders, he sends out his armies, what does David do? He stays home. He stays home. Not a meaningless fact, y'all. The writer who wrote this, wrote this very intentionally. This is not a meaningless fact. In fact, this leads into the rest of the lesson. This leads right into David's sin. This is critical to understand. It's a clue to understanding the entire story. And the point being made is that David abandons his kingly responsibilities first. And what he does, as we know about sin, as it is a progression, what he first does is he puts himself in a place of vulnerability. Right? How does that work out? Here's how it works out. David abandons the war. He should be fighting, right? He's sitting there reclining in the lazy boy. Do you understand what that, you know what I'm saying? He's sitting in the lazy boy. There's nothing going on. In fact, that leads into a focus on the flesh. There's no mention of David at this time that he was using this time wisely, that he was redeeming this time. And we clearly see what, as to what next happens that that is the case. And he starts to play with this temptation. David was asleep one night, or rather he could not sleep one night. He goes out onto his front porch on this big patio on a terrace, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing naked in public. And he sees this woman, and he starts to toy with this idea. And rather than running away, he stares, he lusts, he admires, and it starts to consume him. And because it starts to consume him, this progression moves into something else. It moves him to a deliberate sin where he takes Bathsheba, right? And I say Bible school for grown-ups because this may be a situation whether there was consent or there was not consent. Likely, David took this woman and raped her. The king, the man after God's own heart, right? And what happens after that is he seeks to cover it up. He sins again. He conspires. And he tries to frame her husband, Uriah. He tries to, to get Uriah to go sleep with her so 
it covers up his sin, that it makes sure that that's not his, what we would call a bastard child back then. That's not his. And he tries to do that with Uriah, but Uriah is a man of too much honor, and he's a man of too much integrity. And he knows that in a time of war, his duty is to serve Israel, right? And so why, Uriah thinks, why do I get to go home? Why do I get to sleep with my life when the whole other rest of the army and all the commanders don't? It says he would rather sleep at the pavement stones of his king's door in the rain rather than go back home. And because Uriah won't go back home, because David cannot cover up his sin in this way, he decides to do it another way because Uriah would not break his integrity. And what he does is he sends his valued general, he has his valued general and his cousin Joab to carry out the order himself. And David sends Uriah to the front lines of battle, withdraws the rest of the troops, and has the Ammonites kill Uriah. And as we know, consequences follow. But the process doesn't stop there. And to be honest, does the process of sin ever begin there? David knew he sinned. There's no doubt about that. He knows God's law, right? Let me get my notes here. He hides it, and he hides himself. And third, he starts living, and it starts to continue in it. Do you know what happens when you know you sin, but you decide to hide it, and then you start to live in it? What starts to happen? Corruption. You start to sear your conscience, right? What starts to form over your heart, do you think? A callus. You ever go work with a shovel, you're digging a big hole or something, and you start to get these little wounds on your fingers? They're called blisters. You keep going to work. What happens? Not blisters. But calluses start to form, things that are rust. In fact, these calluses cannot hardly feel the pain anymore because you have worked again and again and again. That's what happens with sin. You sin again and again and again and again, and a callus starts to form over your heart to where you don't even know what you're doing anymore, and you forget that you're sinning against God. He becomes possessed by sin. He forgets God. He ignores God. And the great king who used to slay lions falls victim to the roaring lion, right? The roaring lion that says, come and play. But in reality, the truth of the roaring lions is it's not come and play, it's come and die. And as mentioned, the consequences follow, but the consequences don't follow until the confrontations of David's life. This is a climax of his life. The ewe lamb, right? The prophet of God does the confronting. He uses a parable. What a parable is, is often, oh, and also may I say, parables aren't a New Testament thing, just so you know. Parables are a very Old Testament thing. Jesus used Old Testament parables. And here's the Old Testament parable that we get here, except David does not know it's a parable. He thinks it's a real-life account because he's the judge. And what a parable is, is it uses a certain story to establish a certain moral theme or a doctrine or a certain part of theology. And it uses certain characters or certain entities to personify real living situations and real characters. And like I said, David does not notice this as a parable. He thinks it's he thinks Nathan, his, his counselor and his prophet, is bringing him some story about something that's going on in the countryside, something real that's happening that deserves a judicial ruling because he's the king. But if you read verses 1 through 6, which I'll go ahead and do, you start to see that maybe it's a little more than a real-life situation. It's a parable. It says that David came, or Nathan came to David, and he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. It says the rich man had all of these things, all these wonderful things. He had all the riches in the world, but it says that the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And what it goes on to say is that a traveler came to the rich man and that it took, he took his ewe lamb, or the rich man took the ewe lamb to provide it for the traveler. Um, and it left the poor man with absolutely nothing. There's symbolic meaning here, right? I wonder what your interpretation is. 
I heard a lot of interpretations, and actually I was looking this up a couple days ago, what are the theologians and commentators, and actually a lot of them don't even think these represent any certainty, well, they think it just represents a certain moral theme, and I think it's a lot more. This is obviously a parable. This is obviously something that denotes something that's a whole lot bigger than, than just a moral theme. This represents people. Who is the poor man? Uriah. A lot of people say Bathsheba because something was stolen from her. Not true. It's Uriah. Who is the ewe lamb? No. I don't think it's Bathsheba. I could be wrong. You can go see what the other commentators say. I think the ewe lamb is also Uriah, funny enough. And I don't think it's necessarily the man Uriah. I think it's the life of Uriah. It's the joy of Uriah. It's the, it's the life of this man who has lived this loyal, integritous life, who has lived this joyous life, who has been faithful to his king. And David says he's going to go ahead and steal it away from him. Who is the traveler? Who is the traveler that knocks at the rich man's door? It's probably sin, right? Sin that comes and it knocks and it starts to entertain you. It says, can you feed me? And it convinces you to feed him. And actually it demands that you feed him. That's what the traveler does. I ask you another question. Who is your right? Who is your right? Now that got you. Uriah in this story almost represents someone else too. And I saw this while reading this. Who do you think Uriah is? When you read about the man that Uriah is, you may notice it. Uriah is the man that David is not. The man David is supposed to be. The man who is supposed to be loyal, full of integrity, faithful to his king, who will not bow his moral integrity to some cheap pleasure, but who would rather sleep on pavement stones before his God rather than give it up for some cheap, some cheap gratification. But who is David in this story? He's the rich man, right? Nathan says to the king, you're the man. Boys, this is not the good, you're the man. This is the bad, you're the man. And what this does is it plunges a dagger into David's heart. Do you know what Hebrews 4.12 says? It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What happens in the story is David sins, Nathan confronts him with sin, and he says this one line, and he gives him this one parable that what it does is it reaches in his chest, it spreads it apart, and it rips the callus right off, and it leaves him bleeding. That's what happens in the story. The point of, da the point of Nathan that Nathan is trying to make is that it's David's fault. A lot of people say, well, Bathsheba's the one who enticed him. She was bathing, bathing publicly. Of course, there's some guilt upon her. Or Joab, who carried out the order to kill Uriah. Uriah was the one in the way, so maybe it's his fault. What about Satan? Is it Satan's fault? Whose fault does Nathan say it is? David's. Your sin is your guilt. Your guilt is your own. You're the fault maker. No one else has anything to do with how you sin against God. And it was the same way with David. Judge, judge. David is as the judge. David is as the judge who comes to a trial, who is going to try a criminal, and it gets flipped on him, and the judge ends up getting tried as the criminal by Nathan, another judge. And as any trial goes, what happens? There's a verdict, and after a verdict, there's a judgment, and after a judgment, there are consequences. This has a lot to do with last week, if you can remember. So what is the bad? That's our question first. This is our first point. Ask it in the form of question. What is the bad? The bad is that David's sin brings judgment, and it can come in the form of family dysfunction. And as always is the case with sexual sin, it comes in the form of family dysfunction. This is kind of a sidetrack, but I was researching this, and I just want you to know this, by the way, just so 
we can have a call to action to get back to where we need to be and to repent to where we need to be. Did you know that 90% of the men in this country have had an extramarital sexual experience or have watched pornography? This has a lot to do with David. I'm just saying within the church, even among professed Christians, I read this shocking statistic that 64% of, of men watch porn on a monthly basis or engage in some extramarital sexual activity on a monthly basis. You think that's a strange sin that is limited nowadays, right? It's not. This sin was David's sin too, all right? And it is a societal sickness that has wreaked havoc on the earth ever since man sinned against God, and it ravages the house of David. Do you know what the consequences that come because of David's sin? I'll tell you. Duke, you go ahead and flip the next slide. This is David's family. The sin that David makes ravages his household. His son Amnon ends up raping David's daughter and his own half-sister Tamar. Amnon is then murdered by his brother Absalom, and Absalom rebels against David. He sleeps with his father's wife, just as Nathan said, and his pride leads to his own death. And then there's David's son Adonijah, who sets up a coup to overthrow his father. His father forgives him and spares his life, but David's other son Solomon goes ahead and executes him when he becomes king. And if we know anything about Solomon, what does he do? He follows in his father's footsteps in the same sin. And a wise man who was rich dies a very poor man because of what David did ultimately. And he carried on that legacy. So sin may be a quick pleasure. And the bad is this. Sin does give something, right? It does give a gratification. You can agree with that. But the other reality is that sin is cheap. David's sin is cheap. It's highway robbery. How is this ever really worth it? How is this worth it? Jesus says in Matthew 5, I was talking to Joe about this earlier. Jesus said, it is better to cut off your hand that makes you sin than for your entire body to be thrown into hell. That's how seriously, serious Jesus takes sin. That's how seriously you should take sin. Because what sin does is it steals and it kills and it destroys abundant life. And it rips the heart out of a man. And what it puts back in is this fake heart of stone that calluses over, that cannot fill, that cannot heal, that cannot grow closer to the God who made you to be who you are meant to be. And sexual sin in this passage is clearly outlined as one of the most detrimental and addicting and deadly. And it's not the only one found in the text. The other things that are found through the judgment include this. David sleeps with Bathsheba. That's the sexual sin. Do you know who Bathsheba was? Bathsheba was actually the daughter of one of David's mighty men, one of his greatest friends. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors. So who has David just sinned against too? Not just Bathsheba, but her father and her grandfather. What else happens? Like we said, David abandons his kingly role when he should have been at war. David abandons his role as a husband, and his wives go neglected. Notice how I said wives. That's another sin of David's. David abandons his children, and they go unloved. And David conspires and has Joab, his general, sin for him, and he tarnishes the integrity of his own trusted friend. And then he goes ahead, like I said, and he murders a man of integrity, who loyally, who only ever loyally laid down his life for his king. And then he covers the sin up and he acts like it didn't even happen. I won't even bother naming you what else he was capable of or what he did. I won't bother naming what else you are capable of doing, both men and women. Altogether, as you have seen this happen in your lives, haven't you? Have you seen the result of someone else's sin affect you? Have you seen the result of your sin affect someone else? Have you been hurt or have you been the source of hurt? Bible's very practical. Because it speaks into your life in the same way that Nathan speaks into David's life. I want you to know that.
Sin is cheap. It steals, it kills, it destroys. It never gives you the contentment you need, does it? Do you ever really get the true satisfaction that you desire? No, because you're not running to God for the satisfaction that you desire. And so those things are cheap, and they're going to ruin your life, and they're not even going to give you just earthly consequences. They're going to give you an eternal consequence that Jesus talks about more than anybody else. For the wages of sin is death. And the finality of the bad is that you will be found out. David was found out. He was exposed. He was exposed to Nathan. He was exposed to his family. He was exposed to the nation of Israel itself, just as Nathan said. And you're sitting here 3,000 years later after this event, and he's being exposed to you. How cool is that? Or how not cool is that? Whatever interpretation you want to take. That's not pretty, is it? Next question. What is the ugly? Because believe it or not, the ugliest thing is not the judgment to follow. The ugliest thing is not these consequences. The ugliest thing is not these results. The most hideous thing is not that his sons go on to murder each other. And the most disgusting thing is not even the fact that David sacrifices an innocent man of integrity in the pursuit of gratifying his sex addiction. What's the ugliest part of this? I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord who gave him everything, God who gave him a kingly anointing. He sinned against the God who gave him salvation from Saul, who gave him an army of mighty men to protect and fight with him, who gave David a throne and people to rule over. He gave, gave David children and a wife and advisors and counselors and friends. And he says, if that would have been too little, if that was not enough for you, he says, I would have given you more. David forgot God. And he just didn't just forget God. He deliberately sinned against God. It says that David went out of his way and he despised the word of God, just as Nathan said. He despised and forgot the precepts of God. He despised and forgot the people of God. He despised and forgot the purpose of God. And more than anything, he despised and he forgot the person of God above all else. God is supposed to be David's prize. God is supposed to be David's satisfaction. When David says affair, God says adultery. When we say love, God says lust. When we say sexy, God says sin. When we say romantic, God says ruin. And when we say destiny... God says destruction. All in favor for one moment. David trades a life of godly obedience, a life of godly obedience, for a night of godless adultery. That's the deceitfulness of sin. And David says that his greatest adultery is not on his wife or wives or on Bathsheba. His greatest adultery is the one he committed against God himself. Every time you fall short of the glory of God, every time you do sin against God, you effectively cheat on him. Every time you pick a cheap imitation of God called an idol, you neglect and you spit upon the living, breathing creator of the universe who gave you life and breath, who has only ever been 100% faithful to you, right? He's only been 100% faithful to you. You've been 0% faithful to him, right? And like I said, there's an eternal judgment and there's immediate consequences in this life. I want you to understand something and ask you, is David a good man? Is he really a good man? Does the story paint David as a good man in this story? I don't think it does. And I've seen this ugly play out in the lives of others. I'll give you a story. There's one particular man who comes to mind. A man who from his youth wanted to be a big time, big wig for the kingdom of God. Since he was a child, he wanted to plant churches, and he wanted to conquer the world with the gospel. And he was a very zealous man. And God gave him everything, gave him a degree in ministry, and gave him a degree in missions. 
He gave him the ability to serve as a missionary from Australia to Siberia. He gave him the opportunity to be a college campus minister at Louisiana State University. He gave him the opportunity to be a successful lead minister in Colorado. And God gave him a beautiful wife and gave him two beautiful daughters. And even and at this time, he was pursuing a doctorate degree in ministry. He was going to be big time. Despite all those things, in truth, he had a lifetime struggle behind closed doors, just like David did. And the ugly came and it found, it found him out. And it found him out while he was on mission. But while he was on mission, he abandoned his responsibilities and had an affair. And what he did in that affair is he sacrificed himself, who was the man of integrity, for brief gratification. Do you know what it cost him? Everything. He lost all his ministry and missions positions. He got kicked out of doctorate school. He got excommunicated by the church for good reason. He lost his wife and his kids and his home and his friends. But most of all, it destroyed the, destroyed the faith of those who looked up to him, and it destroyed his relationship, his divine relationship with the Creator. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, and the Bible means for the wages of sin is death. And like David, he gave up everything for absolutely nothing, and it cost him and it hurt him. It left him homeless, jobless, lost and suicidal, and it left him as a sinner before a holy God. But as we transition to the next point, I want you to know that it is only at rock bottom that you can ever look up, right? Maybe rock bottom is not such a bad place. And at rock bottom, can we ask this, what is the good? Because can you ever believe that good can come out of this situation? Can you believe that good can come from this failed preacher? Can you believe that good could come from this ugly, rotten king, a man who who devastated his family by his own actions, who devastated his own nation by his actions, sons who rebelled, babies who died, marriages that are ruined because one man thought it was worth trading everything for his desires. And we come to this point, we ask what is the ugly, or we ask what is the good when there's an ugly king who stands naked and guilty before a holy God. When you stand naked and guilty before a holy God, do you know what the good is? It's the one you stand in front of. The holy God is the good in that harsh, gloomy, and ugly reality. Verse 13 says, if I can get to it, it says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's the good. Who can tell me why David is just forgiven? Why is David just justified all of a sudden? I'll tell you why. It's because he swallows his pride and he admits his fault. And he knows that he's betrayed his own king and he's given, he's betrayed the king who's given him everything, right? How are David's sins taken away? Psalm 51, go there. Go to Psalm 51. I'll tell you how David's sins are taken away and I'll tell you how your sins are taken away too. This is the parallel writing of David in this exact moment of his sin and of his repentance. And if you read this, you'll get a picture-perfect idea of how David is forgiven and how you can be forgiven. In Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, it says this. David cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, and according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
And against you, he says, and against you only have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight, that so you are proved correct when you speak, and you are true and just when you judge. What's the contrast we see here? That's the contrast. David says, my transgressions, he says, my iniquity, he says, my sin, it doesn't belong to anyone else except me. He owns it, right? The blame is himself. Notice that contrast. Where in the world am I in my notes? That's all right. I'll find it. There we are. What is the other contrast of ownership? David owns his sin. What does God own? Your steadfast love, your abundant mercy, your justification, your judgment, and your righteousness. That's what he says. Verses 10 through 12. Get these notes out of the way. Verses 10 through 12, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. He says, Restore me to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Contrast again. What does he say? Your. Your power can create and can renew and restore and can reconcile me. Only you can forget, you can forgive, and only you can flourish. He says, give me the right heart, give me the new spirit, and give me the joy of my salvation. Verse 16 and 17 says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are what? A broken heart. The sacrifice that God desires is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. By no sacrifice I can make am I saved. And the good is in that ugly reality. Have you ever thought about that? The good is that you have nothing to bring. You got nothing. God says, all I want is a broken heart. They will admit he has a broken heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you want to know the real meaning of Matthew 5? I'll give you the real meaning of Matthew 5. It's just this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. He says, blessed are those who thirst to be made righteous and who are not righteous. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to address you as Christians, and I want to address you if there is not a Christian in this room. You have nothing to contribute to your salvation. Did you know that? You have nothing. Zero zilch. Nada. Nothing. For too long, even in the church today, especially in the American church, American church, we have hypothesized and we have heard and we have doctrinalized how a man is justified, how a man reaches God, how a man gets to heaven. And I think for most of my life and most of yours, we have been wrong or we have been lied to. Sometimes I think I was wrong and sometimes I think I was lied to. The only way for you to be right before God is to be restored, reconciled, and redeemed to him. And it's not by your own justifying yourself with your goodness. It's not by your reaching to God. It's not by your getting to heaven. The offense of the gospel is that you bring nothing. You can do nothing on your own. In fact, what separates true Christianity from every other religion and every other philosophy and every other political system, for Pete's sake, is the fact that you do bring nothing. And every other religion says you can bring something. That's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, my good works are as filthy rags before you. That when you enter the room before God's throne, he sees you as filthy as you have ever been. In fact, your good works are even worse. It makes you even worse because it cannot compare to how good he is. That's the holy God. 
We sang it earlier. Rock of Ages, right? I was talking to David about this. It's a very meaningful song to me. Thank you, Charlie, for leading it. And the second line says, It is not of labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my own tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. The good is and the truth is, is that when you realize that reality, can you ever be saved? It was only because David came to this reality that he was forgiven and restored. Do you know why David is called the man after God's own heart? It's not because he lived this high and righteous life. It's not because he was this purely obedient man to God. It's because he was totally unrighteous and he was totally not good. But what he did have is he had a broken spark, broken heart, and a repentant spirit about him. That's what made him a man after God's own heart because he desired God's heart to be his own. That's what he desired. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. Now for you, do you remember the ewe lamb? And I'm not talking about the ewe lamb parable we read earlier. I'm talking about another ewe lamb. The beloved lamb of a poor man, the lamb who was stolen and slaughtered from him. There was another lamb beloved by his father, and a lamb who was stolen but also was given by that poor man. There was a rich man who came and who stole and crucified that lamb, and there was not a fourfold retribution. There was an infinite retribution for doing such a thing. The Lamb's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. We call him the Lamb of God. He was given by the Father, and he was stolen by the rich man. Who is the rich man? You're the man, or you're the woman. It's you. And that's the gospel. And when you finally accept that, and when you finally accept by faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven, that he reached to mankind to justify you by his work and by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, that you can be saved. What's the good for you? Like I said, it's the holy God right in the mire, right in the mud, right in the ugly. It's the good God who is there with open arms. And it's sorrow because you don't measure up and you never will. But that sorrow and that brokenness and that hurt and that ugly produces a repentance and a faith that will last a lifetime. And you want to know what faith is? Faith, like I said, is the fact that you bring nothing, that, but you wholly trust in a good God who can save you. You trust that He is good for you. You trust that He bore the ugly for you. You trust that He can fix your ugliness. And you trust that He died the death you deserved. And you trust that He bore the wrath of God that should have been placed on you. And that although sin is mine... And then although salvation is God's, like we looked at earlier, the truth of the gospel is that God took my sin to give me his salvation. That he raised to life and he defeated death because you could never defeat so great an enemy yourself. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. David knew the rock of ages. And I dare say... That how David's sin was forgiven was the same way that your sin was forgiven. By the blood of Jesus on the cross, I'll say it. He didn't have a cross to cling to. He didn't know about a cross. It wasn't invented yet. He didn't know the man upon the cross. He knew the Savior of the world would be of his line, but he did not know him. But what he did cling to was to the message and to the intent of the cross. And the message and the intent of the cross is God's infinite mercy, grace, and love. Right? You following me? Everybody? Amen?
I told you a story earlier about a man like David, a man of great status and potential who was given everything by God. And it was in the deepest, ugliest moment of his life that God began to work. A selfless friend, by the way, God used a person who was not even a Christian to help raise him back up on his feet, to get him a job as a janitor. This great high mighty preacher, a janitor. Eventually he was selling insurance and eventually he was invited back to church. And when he came back to church, he could not join the worship assembly because it would break him. But when he finally did worship in the assembly, he wept every single time for years. But he let his devastation go. And in time, through the ugliness, God brought this exiled minister back to a role in part-time ministry. And in more time, he became the lead minister of that same church. And in more, more time, he was remarried to an incredibly godly woman. And in more, more, more time... He accepted an offer to shepherd a small rural East Texas church. And God took him from rock bottom to restoration. And in fact, if he had never hit rock bottom, there never would have been restoration. And if he had not been restored, he'd never pastor again. And if he had never become that pastor, he would never become the pastor of a little East Texas church. And if he would have never done that, he wouldn't have been able to advent the gospel of Jesus Christ into my own life and now my life into yours and Duke's life as well. You see how God works through ugly and through bad for an ultimate good. And the consequences of his ugliness still exist. His relationships are still fractured. His sin still haunts him. But the godness of good persists when his ugliness exists. And he works through us, through you and me, through our ugliness to advent his son. And I don't want you to doubt that reality. What you've been through doesn't matter. It's the message of the Bible itself. Perhaps God's word, just as Nathan spoke to David, has showed you a starting reality, that you are the man. You're the one who hides, and you're the one who sacrifices a man of integrity named Jesus Christ, and you sit in shackles. So let this sit with you, if the message is for you. Let the godly sorrow work, let the ugly marinate, be broke, realize just how ugly you are, that you are not good. Remember when we talked about that last week, Paul? We're not good. You're ugly, bad, and worse, but that's okay. Because God does not call the righteous, but the what? The unrighteous. Come to the foot of the cross before a crucified Savior and call upon his name. And just as David said, you can even do this yourself. Say, Son of God, have mercy on me. I have sinned against you, Lord, and you alone. Cleanse me with hyssop and create in me a clean heart. And he will. And he will. And then arise like David was. Arise, be baptized, whatever it is, or maybe you just need to get right again. But arise, go back to war. And as the rest of that Psalm 51 says, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. He says, I will preach your gospel, the same gospel that saved my life. And the gospel is that the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. I said last week that the totality of the Bible's ugliness and the Bible's badness and the Bible's good are go, they go to prove three things. And I say the same today. And so would all the prostitutes and the pimps and all the killers and the kings and all the adulterers and the murderers alike, and David included. And the three things are this, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, born in poverty to a virgin. He was born into ugly. Number two is that Jesus Christ advents himself into our ugly by his grace. And number three is that Jesus Christ not only advents himself into our ugly lives, but he adds him, advents himself through your life to affect the lives of every single person that you meet.
Oswald Chambers, a 20th century Scots evangelist said, and through a broken heart, God can bring his purposes to pass in this world and thank him for breaking your heart. Let's pray. Our fathers in heaven, Lord, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remind us that we are no good. And the only way that we can become good is if we realize that we're not and that we beg you for your goodness. The song also says, cleanse me from wrath and make me pure, Lord. Do that with us and continue to sanctify us, Lord. Help us to live in daily repentance and break us when we sin. Do not let us have calloused hearts or lest we become empty people. I thank you for this word. I thank you how you have changed my life by that Psalm 51, by this story, and by a man whose story is just as similar to mine, even God. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ who advents himself into our lives every day to change us and to use us to change everybody else. Lord, haste the day that his second advent comes and everything shall be restored, God. Bring it quickly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.